Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I am joined by Chef Eric Gabrinowicz. He is the Senior VP of Culinary and Beverage, as well as the Corporate Executive Chef for Tupelo Honey. He's based in Asheville, North Carolina, but Tupelo Honey has 20-some locations scattered across kind of the east of the Mississippi area. I mean, they, they spread a little bit, I think, into Texas, but they just recently opened the Columbus, Ohio location at the end of October. And we actually had the pleasure of going to their soft opening uh, and checking out a bunch of their food that they had on the menu and stuff that they were coming out with. And it's all super delicious. The chicken is amazing. It's got this proprietary blend. It's this mix of kind of the sugar sweetness, but also there's some spice to it, but it's not overly hot or anything like that. Also shout out to our server. I do forget her name, but she gave us this great recommendation of if you get their fried chicken, it normally comes with a sauce on it. If you get that sauce on the side, then you kind of get this full flavor of their proprietary blend that they use on the chicken. And then you can also kind of dip into the sauce or dump some sauce on there if you want. So definitely the pro tip move. Uh, so I was super happy that, you know, we ordered that way. The fried pickles are amazing too as well. They're lightly breaded. It's not overly deep fried or anything like that. They come with a nice dipping sauce too as well. And we had a few other things. They had a banana pudding on there, which basically was like banana cream pie in a cup, essentially. If you like banana cream pie, you definitely like this. So it was really cool to be able to go check out all the food, or at least some of the food that they're going to be coming out with. Their menu is a little bit bigger now. You know, they have shrimp and grits and some other Southern staples on there too as well. But we get into this episode with Eric, why they chose Columbus, why they chose the location that they did in Columbus, which is off Lane Avenue, a couple doors down from Hudson 29, basically a caddy corner to the Whole Foods there, just south of campus of the Ohio State University. And we talk about his career too. You know, he worked in New York for a while, opened and ran his own restaurant, you know, and why he decided to kind of leave that. You know, he's nominated for James Beard Awards, you know, kind of had this high profile restaurant and kind of left all that behind and took on kind of a corporate role uh, within, you know, Tupelo Honey. And we get into how he first started there and menu development, all this stuff. So super interesting conversation, super informative, eye-opening too as well. It's just a different perspective from somebody who's been in the industry on kind of all sides of it too as well. Uh, Also shout out to Megan Garb for uh, helping kind of put this all together and coordinating on uh, scheduling and everything. She also did some helping with uh, getting Sebastian LaRocca on the podcast uh, too as well, a handful of episodes ago. So super thankful that she continued to think of us when there's somebody who'd be interested in jumping on the podcast and talking about their career and everything and you know a new restaurant open into as well so that's been really awesome to make uh, connections kind of in that field hopefully you know we'll have more people from that world too on the podcast but you can follow Eric. He has his own Instagram account it's Eric Gabrinowix it's just his full name so E-R-I-C G-A-B-R-Y-N-O-W-I-C-Z. He's the only one on there with that coordination of names, so it shouldn't be too hard to find him. And you can also follow the restaurant account, Tupelo Honey. Their restaurant account covers all their locations, so it's not location-specific. Like, there's not a Tupelo Honey Columbus, Tupelo Honey Indianapolis, or anything like that. They just have one kind of broad account, too. But you can follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob. 
We're on all the other social medias, either Spoon Mob or Spoon Mob One on those platforms. Make sure to check out our website, SpoonMob.com. We have different profiles of all the guests that we've had on the podcast. So food photos, um, any updates since they've been on the podcast, things that are happening in their career or with the restaurant or what have you. Links to all the episodes are up on the website too as well. But you can also follow the podcast, whatever platform that you use, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music. We're on all of them. Everything except for Pandora, you can find us on iHeartRadio. You know, if you use that for streaming music throughout your day, your work day or whatever, you know, you can find us on there too as well. So just hit the follow button. All new episodes will download straight into your player. New episodes traditionally come out Thursdays at 1 a.m. We are currently releasing two episodes this month for the month of December. So Tuesdays and Thursdays. Also, you guys can you know reach out to us directly either through the contact portal on the website or hit us up spoonmob at yahoo.com. You can even message us on Instagram too as well. Shoot us a DM and we'll get back to you too. Without any further delays, here is my conversation with Chef Eric Gabrinowicz, the Senior VP of Culinary and Beverage and also the Corporate Executive Chef at Tupelo Honey based in Asheville, North Carolina. Cool. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. I know you're a busy guy with uh, different locations in the works and opening and getting all that stuff ready. The Columbus one here just opened, I think officially last week. And then there was a soft opening, which we were able to go to and, and try some of the food too. So I want to get into how you guys decided on Columbus and all that stuff and where you're expanding next. I know there's a few things listed on the website, but I always like to start with everybody at the beginning. So, you know, how did you first get involved with cooking? I mean, you've worked at a bunch of different places, but how did you kind of first get started? My father's best friend owned a, a small restaurant in our hometown, which is a very small, maybe 10,000 people live there. And there was a big celebration every year where the town shut down and all the streets closed down, parade, all that stuff. And it was the one day a year that you could run around with your friends like a lunatic and just do whatever you wanted to do. And it was wonderful. And so as a 10, 12, 13-year-old kid, that's what I planned on doing. It was the one day you look forward to every year. And the year I turned 13, my father said to me, well, cool, but for five hours of that day, you're going to go help Bobby uh, and wash dishes in his restaurant. Because obviously for the restaurants, it was a bananas day and they needed all hands on deck. And I kicked and screamed and kicked and screamed because I wanted to hang out with my friends. Well, he made me. And then he told me because I was disobedient, so to speak, I was going to work that five-hour shift and he was going to take the money. He did. So I worked a five-hour shift washing dishes, hanging over a, a dishwasher, three-bay sink, scrubbing my tush off. Yeah, after it was all over, my old man took the 25 bucks I made and uh, I ended up loving it. It was knives and fire and cursing and just the energy from that kitchen as a 13-year-old kid. It was unreal. Ended up that weekend going back and worked every weekend since probably until now. I love the restaurant business. I love everything about it. The, the energy that's created in a kitchen is unmatched. There's not many other types of highs that you can get that are like that. And, and I just fell in love with it from an early age. So I've been working in kitchens since I was 13. So when you graduated high school, did you know that you wanted to go to culinary school? Were you dead set on that? At 13, I started working in the restaurant. By the time I was 14, uh, I was lucky enough to live in New York where the Culinary Institute of America was only about 30 minutes from my house. At 14 years old, I went on the prospective student tour. And so by 16, I knew I was already ready to go application in hand. And uh, 
yeah, ever since then, I was just like, well, I really love this. I think I can be really good at it if I put enough energy and effort into it and uh, ended up doing it. What's the prospective student tour? Is that like a field trip for like people considering or is that just kind of like an exploratory day? It was an exploratory day. I think they had one a month and it was for anybody that was thinking about coming. And I, I think I was the youngest person there by five years. You know, the average age of the Culinary Institute of America college was 27, where every other college is, you know, 19 or 20. So it was a lot of career changers and all of that stuff. So here I am, a 14-year-old kid with a whole lot of grown-ups trying to get into this school. And it, it, it all worked out. The Culinary Institute was amazing. A really great opportunity for me. And I was just lucky enough to live close by to kind of take advantage of the little things that it gave. What was the biggest benefit of going to the culinary school? There's a lot of back and forth in the industry between employees and between friends and peers of like, do you need culinary school or don't you? And I agree with both methods, right? I've seen plenty of people who just put their nose in a kitchen and work their touches off and that was it and are just as successful, if not more than other people that went to culinary school. But for me, being immersed with all like-minded people that were there for a singular goal was the most important thing, right? I could have read in a book about LaRousse and Gastronomique and, and all of those things that we learned about. I also had an environment where there were 70 people in my class or my little pot or whatever it was called at the time that I could speak to about it and that I could just bounce ideas off of. And I would say probably now we're 21 or 22 years later, probably half to three quarters of the people in my class aren't in the industry anymore. But there's also a certified master chef that came out of my class who's actually my roommate and a bunch of big time executives that came out of those classes and some people that end up teaching in culinary school. So I think just being around those like-minded people and being immersed in that culture of food for two, three years was incredibly important to me. And like I said, most chefs don't need that, but maybe I think I did. Did you work while going to culinary school anywhere? I did, but I actually chose to work the front of the house for three years because it was so close to my hometown. And I did live on campus. I would go home and I ended up working for a, a restaurant called Mozzarella's The American Cafe, which was at the time owned by the Ruby Tuesdays group. Um, I don't think they're still in existence. I wanted to go in, do my job and leave and make a little bit of money. And I knew I was so immersed in culinary school at the time and in the kitchen five days a week that that was a great opportunity. I ended up learning a tremendous amount there about how the front of house operates. And I think that completely helped me to become more of a complete chef and run um, you know, aspects of a restaurant group by having some understanding of the front of the house, which a lot of chefs don't have the opportunity to do. So really, it was because I didn't want to work in a kitchen seven days a week at the time. But I, I think I just kind of lucked into a really great benefit of the culinary world. So how'd you wind up at Union Square for the first time? You, you wind up joining the line there. Was that part of the externship program? I lived in a town called Montgomery, New York, which is about 80 miles north of New York City. A lot of farmland, a lot of farms. And one of the farms was my best friend's uh, at the time, his farm. His parents owned this beautiful farm. They basically predominantly sold corn and tomatoes, but they sold it in the Union Square Green Market. And when I was really starting to get into the culinary world, Sue and Henry uh, Smith came up to me and said, uh, you know, every chef in New York City shops in the Union Square Green Market and every chef comes to our stand. They're like, we have great relationships with them. Why don't you come work for the summer for us? You can load corn and tomatoes into a truck and sell it at Union Square Green Market. We'll introduce you to every chef that walks through. And so they did. So I worked for them for about three months and one random summer. Michael Romano, Wayne Nish, Mario Batali, like the list goes on and on. And Jean-George, Dan Kluger, Floyd Cardoz all came through every day. They bought 
tomatoes and corn because Sycamore Farm has the best still to this day at Union Square Green Market. And I ended up hitting it off with Michael Romano from Union Square Cafe, and he offered me an internship. And so I started working at Union Square Cafe at 19 years old. Um, I did a six-month internship through the CIA program, and then he offered me a job before I left and went right back after culinary school ended. Was it kind of a restaurant that you knew anything about beforehand working there? Or were you recognized the faces of these chefs as they came through and you were looking up restaurants and like, oh, that'd be a cool place to work? It was a little bit of both. I knew I wanted to cook for a living, but I don't think anybody from outside New York City really understands the New York City restaurant scene and how intricate it is, how big yet small it is at the same time. I kind of learned trial by fire. Every time they would introduce me to another chef, you know, I'd go home and I'd look them up and I'd see what they were all about. Union Square Cafe, I watched their buying practices like from us, but from other vendors and loved what they were all about. And then the restaurant was right around the corner, like maybe 500 feet from where our stand was. I'd go by and see how they use the stuff every day because they would they would use the market to create the specials for their menu. And they would have six to eight specials every day that came directly out of the market. And so I'd go to the menu board and, and read it and be like, whoa, I sold them those tomatoes or I sold them that corn. That's really cool. A lot of people claim they were in the pioneering stages of the farm to table movement. Union Square Cafe was that. I mean, they practiced what they preached. They sourced from the right people before it was important to the guests. They did it just because it was the right thing to do. Their food was simple and beautiful. I mean, I don't know if you know Danny Meyer at all, but Danny Meyer, who owned that restaurant group, Gramercy Cavern Union Square Cafe, now Shake Shack and probably countless others. He was involved and he is probably the most wonderful person I've ever met in the restaurant business. And just they, they walk the walk, they talk the talk, they did it and they treated their people well. And it was an incredibly wonderful experience. I can't imagine having done it another way. It, it kind of catapulted me right into the next steps of my career. Yeah, I mean, he founded 11 Madison Park and then, you know, sold it. You know, obviously Shake Shack is the big thing. I think he either like stepped down from like running his hospitality group. He's kind of semi-retired, but it's really strange where you kind of read his story and usually people that become popular, you know, names are, you know, chefs and he's on the opposite side of it where he's just a guy who like founded all these different restaurants and like they all just kind of blew up and he, you know, was pushing the no tip model and all that stuff too as well. But then I think the pandemic kind of derailed some of that. Once you kind of work at Union Square for a little bit, you wind up going to Blue Smoke and Jazz Standard? Yeah, that was the next stop. When I graduated school, I took a trip to California, Napa Valley, and just kind of hung around for a week or two. And then I went right back to New York City. So I moved into New York City in downtown Manhattan on 9-1-2001. So 11 days before 9-11 was my first day living as a quote-unquote grown-up on my own. Worked at Union Square Cafe for about eight or nine more months, maybe a little bit more than that. And my executive sous chef at the time is a gentleman named uh, Kenny Callahan, and he was tapped to open um, Blue Smoke and Jazz Standard. So Blue Smoke was Danny Meyer's first opportunity to enter the world of urban barbecue, is what he called it at the time. You know, it's the first really authentic pit barbecue restaurant in New York City. Sure, I'll get some flack for that from some of the other old timers, but I don't care because we did it really well. So Danny went on a culinary like barbecue tour with Kenny Callahan and this gentleman named Mike Mills. Mike Mills is the only three-time grand champion at Memphis and May Barbecue. And Mike became a partner with Danny and they opened Blue Smoke. And I learned how to cook barbecue from literally the greatest barbecue master to ever live in Mike Mills. 
just had a blast uh, doing it and loved it. I think I was just 21 years old when I was there and worked, you know, three months straight, 18 hour days to open this restaurant. And it was an incredibly cool experience. It's still some of my best friends that I've ever made were from that opening in that restaurant. And there's still one open in New York City right now. uh, And it's absolutely delicious. Great barbecue. What's the biggest challenge or biggest difficulty with learning how to cook barbecue? You know, that's not something that you had done prior. And now it's this whole different process. The biggest frustration with learning to cook barbecue is that everybody is entirely too opinionated about their specific style of barbecue. You're opening in New York City that doesn't have its own identity of what barbecue is. So you're trying to hit different marks, right? We had St. Louis style ribs here and Memphis style baby backs there and North Carolina barbecue here and Memphis, you know, all this different kind of barbecue. But everybody's opinion is right on barbecue, as it is tomato sauce in Italy. So that was probably the most frustrating part. The most difficult part to go from cooking a certain style of market-driven cuisine to cooking barbecue was patience. A 21-year-old kid coming into culinary school, working in a high-volume environment, doesn't understand patience. I didn't. And barbecue is all about making sure that you can let the meat cook on its time frame and not your time frame. And that's, that was a really tough thing to learn as a 21-year-old kid. So then next, you kind of move over to Tabla. Why did you go there? At the point that Blue Smoke was kind of getting its footing, I kind of wanted to go back to cooking a little bit more of a fine dining cuisine. And I wanted to learn a little bit more technique and intricacy. And Tabla was also a Danny Meyer restaurant that was chefed uh, by a gentleman named Floyd Cardoz who ended up becoming a a wonderful mentor for me. And Floyd was born in India, came to the United States and worked his way up in French kitchens. And so he worked at Les Pinas under um, Greg Kuntz and Andrew Carmelini and a bunch of different, you know, really high-end French kitchens in New York City. I thought, what a really cool experience to learn a new cuisine, new ingredients and all of these spices, and then really solidify that with French technique. And that's exactly what it was. And and it was really cool to see the way they built that restaurant. They had uh, two floors, one which was a very high-end fine dining restaurant on the, the top floor. It was about 70 seats total. And then the basement level was this very lively, cool bar where they did more street food, breads, tandoori breads, tandoori, everything, chops and puris and really wonderful Indian food. And uh, I got a taste of both. I worked there for about two years, actually met my wife there and we're married to this day. It was just so different in New York City from what everybody else was doing. I had the opportunity to learn Indian food and learn French technique at the same time. And, and to take two check marks off the experience of what you're looking for to get to the next level was, was really important to me. And, and I got a, it was a great opportunity. When you're deciding to move to all these different restaurants up to this point, are you specifically looking for something else that you can kind of add to your skill set, your repertoire, whether it's you know spices or obviously barbecue, so that's open flame cooking and how you play with smoke and all that stuff? Yeah, 100%. I don't know what the mindset of the young culinarian is now, but then it was do your 18 months to two years and learn what you want to learn in different sectors of food. Leave it up to your imagination to how you want to be well-rounded by the time you're ready to become a, a chef. That's what I did. I was looking for a different path to get to the end than maybe some of my other colleagues would have. And I think that really separated me. I mean, you still have to learn to be a good chef and a good person and a manager of people and a good technical cook. But to have the bullets in the gun of Indian food, smoking meat, market-driven cuisine was really kind of a broad understanding of so many different areas of cooking. And they all interloped a little bit, 
but I wanted a broad understanding of how to be a complete chef by the time I got to the level where I would let someone call me chef, which obviously wasn't then at that point. You wind up going back to Union Square, right? And you become a sous chef for the first time? Yeah. And that to me was, you know, so I learned these three incredibly different, wonderful cuisines and said, okay, what's the next step to getting to be a chef was learning how to treat people and learning how to run a kitchen and learning how to manage, right? Everybody can cook food and everybody can have fun cooking food. But it was really, I then had to say, okay, who's going to teach me how to be the best person chef I can be, which is, you know, a lot of being a chef isn't cooking. It's a lot of relationships with vendors, with with getting the best out of people. And, you know, as I mentioned before about Danny, Danny created an environment and a culture of respect and understanding and really about taking care of each other. For me, I went to Danny and said, I want to learn how to be a really great chef. What's my next step? And he mentioned, you know, going back to Union Square. And at the time they were in transition. They were moving on from Michael Romano and going to this amazing chef named Carmen Qualiata, great chef in Napa Valley. It was really well known at this restaurant called Trevenia. And he moved to the East Coast and was dubbed as the next or the first person to kind of take the executive chef reins at Union Square Cafe away from Michael Romano. And that was almost unthought of, right? Michael Romano was so entrenched in that restaurant and still was a part of it. I ended up going back to be a sous chef for him. And uh, we started at the same time and a great experience. I learned so much from both of them or all three of them, Michael, Danny and Carmen, again, about how to be a really good chef. Learning of food was only a part of it, but learning how to be that manager of people, motivator, coach. That was the part that I really learned in that second stint at Union Square Cafe. What's the biggest challenge with being a sous chef and managing other people for the first time in your career? I would say at that point, I think I was 24 or 25 years old. I don't remember exactly. Being a 24, 25-year-old kid and having to manage people that are generally older than you, gaining their respect, and also still being immature. And so working on your own maturity level, working on the ability to, proving to the people around you every day that you belong there via your cooking and, and via your learning style of how to become that chef, that was incredibly difficult. And it was in a great environment, and I'm glad I got to learn in that environment, but it wasn't always the easiest. And, you know, I let a lot of people down in that role a bunch of times. It was really funny. I just had a conversation with Carmen, probably haven't spoken to him in five years, um, and just ended up on a phone call with him a couple months ago and was just like, man, I was a punk. I'm sorry. Like, I learned so much from you, but like, I'm sorry about this. And I, I ended up going down a list and he was like, my nickname at the time was Bubba. And he was like, Bubba, you were great. Shut up. We all did it. You know, we all made those mistakes and we all learned. You know, there's an expectation of a 25-year-old kid having to learn on the fly, and I did. I and mean, I'm just grateful for that opportunity to have learned it there. So how do you get your first executive chef job? Because that's at uh, Tavern at the Highlands Country Club, right? I think I was at Union Square Cafe another two years, worked as a sous chef, worked my way to be second or third in command in that role, and really wasn't that opportunity. Like, I could have kept going in, in that restaurant. I could have gone to another Danny restaurant and, and taken a similar role. But the executive chef role in a, in a New York City restaurant like that wasn't available to a 26-year-old at the time, you know? Like, it's gotten younger and age doesn't mean as much, but at that time it did. So I knew I would have to kind of look outside the box for an executive chef role. And I thought I was ready. Kind of just started sniffing around. And there were a couple offers inside of New York City and some restaurants that ended up on the Eater Death Watch a couple of times. And so it was like failing restaurants or ones that, you know, couldn't quite afford a chef and ended up getting a phone call about this job in the uh, Highlands Country Club in Garrison, New York. And I'm from the Hudson Valley. I was born in Queens, New York, but kind of grew up in the Hudson Valley. So that was really super intriguing to me. And at the time, I had just 
uh, moved in with my wife and we just got engaged. And so I decided to, to kind of take a stab at it and go for it. And what a, a cool experience it was. Like that was a 26 seat restaurant just in the middle of the Hudson Valley, right on a bluff overlooking the Hudson River, literally looking at West Point from our windows on the other side of the river. And I had this incredible opportunity to have carte blanche of a 26 seat, beautiful tavern that was candle lit. It was a really cool experience. I learned a tremendous amount. And they also were a catering venue at the same time. So I kind of got the best of both worlds and had another notch on the belt of learning how to cater weddings and cater large events. But at the same time, I got to cook pretty much by myself with one or two other cooks in a very small restaurant, carte blanche. And that for a 26 year old was an opportunity that many people got. So I was really grateful to have it. I mean, we had our own farm we had less cooks than we did farmers, which was really super cool at the time. God, I wish I remembered his last name, but Brian was our farmer. And, you know, he'd come to me once a year. We'd have a couple of different meetings about what I wanted to see in the gardens. And then, you know, next year he's showing up at the back door with the exact radishes that I asked for and the exact heirloom tomatoes I asked for. And that was a really, really wonderful experience. When you're going through that process of deciding where you want to have your first executive chef job and you're considering these openings, like you mentioned, and some of these restaurants are on the teetering point of failing. Most people, I feel like, especially at that age, would jump at whatever the first opportunity was. So were you looking for something specific in the sense of you were looking at, okay, this is a restaurant who's working here? What are their kind of like references, almost like vetting them to as well? Because I feel like most young chefs wouldn't do that. 100%. I think it's actually a testament to Union Square Cafe and how wonderful they were for me is I didn't have to leave until I found the perfect opportunity. I didn't have to leave until I found the right fit because I was already in a place I felt like home and that I was learning about every learning from every day. I mentioned this restaurant on the Eater Death Watch. I went to one of the first interviews that I took and, you know, the Chef Carmen and Michael knew that I was looking and they, they wanted to help me further my career. And I remember putting it on Facebook or something of the sort if Facebook even existed then. I don't remember. It was somehow got out to my friend group and I just got sent a text and a link back that was the Eater Death Watch of this restaurant, like teetering, not paying its bills, whatever. And I was like, God, like that's not what I'm looking for. And so again, kudos to the Union Square team that they created such a wonderful environment that I didn't have to leave. But I, I thought the Highlands Country Club Tavern Restaurant was a great opportunity that I couldn't pass up. And it ended up, you know, being written up about in the New York Times well. And outside of New York City, they don't give stars. They just give ratings. So I got the highest rating possible, which was uh, was called Excellent at the time. And um, a lot of that stuff was just, uh, it was a perfect time and place. I'm really lucky in my, the course of my career is I made a lot of decisions that could have gone both ways and they were dicey at times and they ended up working out for the best more often than not. So really ended up being lucky. Knowing what you know now, looking back kind of on your career a little bit, do you think it was easier to transition from essentially your you know sous chef role to being an executive chef the first time at the country club because it was a smaller restaurant versus taking over some restaurant that's in New York City that can seat 100, 120 people in a dining room a night? I definitely took it into account that I knew I was going to make mistakes and we all do, especially as a first time chef. So I wanted to also understand what restaurant I would go to would be more um, amenable to those mistakes, right? And to be honest with you, every interview I went to, I brought it up with the person that was interviewing me, be it the chef or the owner. And it was like, listen, I'm 26. I'm going to fail here at certain things. What is our learning level that we're comfortable with in all of these mistakes? And the Highlands people were like, we know you're going to make mistakes. We're okay with that. We'll help you and, and teach you how to get away from them. They were great business people. 
and really humanitarians at the same time, which was hard to find. And I did, and I made mistakes and they taught me through them. And like, I learned how to read a P&L and I learned how to F up a P&L. And I learned sometimes you have to make hard decisions for profitability in order to, to survive. Like sometimes you got to send the cook home to save a couple hours of payroll when you don't want to, and you know, they need the money. And, and those are the tough decisions that you make along the course of learning how to be a chef. And once you get to that level, you're also a businessman. You know, whether you like it or not, it's not just cooking food anymore. And I'm glad I got to do it on someone else's time before I opened my own place. Um, and I, don't get me wrong, I made plenty of mistakes when I opened North. It was nice to be able to ease into those mistakes in a learning environment, which is what I sought out. And I wasn't going to get that in that restaurant in New York City, like you spoke of, that was going to seat 400 people in a night and it had to be perfection and it's teetering on failure. So I, I think I made the right decision. When did you know it was your time or the right time to open your own restaurant, Restaurant North, where you were the executive chef and one of the owners? didn't make that decision on my own, to be honest with you. My partner in Restaurant North and actually the, the guy who came to me with the idea and the founder and basically the lifeblood behind it was a gentleman named Stephen Mancini. And Stephen was a floor manager and the, the head sommelier and wine director at Union Square Cafe. He was my age, maybe he's a year older than me. And God, the guy was a visionary, he is a visionary, he's an incredible talent. One of those people that never was satisfied with status quo and always wanted to push himself harder, push himself for excellence and push himself for the next thing. And he came up uh, to the restaurant unannounced as he does, had a meal at Tavern. And, you know, the next day I got a phone call and he was like, Bubba, let's do this thing together. And he had already sought out a spot and he'd already sought out all of the background on how to get the restaurant open. And it was already in process. The lease was signed and, uh, and he was looking for a partner to, to kind of take it to the next level with and, uh, and ended up just being the right decision to make. You know, I could have stayed at Tavern for a couple more years. They were great to me. And it was a really cool restaurant, a really cool opportunity. But every chef dreams of opening their own place. And, and uh, even helped me accomplish that goal. And we're still really good friends to this day. Uh, we are diehard AS Roma fans. If you're a soccer person, it was a cool experience. I wish I could say that it was my drive and vision to get that restaurant open, but it wasn't. And he took me along for the ride and, and we loved it. Did you have ideas for like what your menu would be in the style of food that you would want to serve? You know, you're always kind of building that up or did you just kind of have to fit with what he was kind of bringing with the wine in the front of the house side? Oh, no, we definitely collaborative on everything. I remember just, you know, multiple, multiple sit downs, meetings at bars and nonstop, you know, text messaging and phone calls, just trying to figure out what we wanted to accomplish. And he had a great vision when we first started, you know, from the lease sign, the restaurant wasn't even built out yet. And uh, he had a great vision for what he thought. And then it was collaborative from that point on. We had so many visions that were coming together. You know, his career took off in one direction, my career, and we were coming together with, he worked at a great restaurant called Maialino for Danny Meyer, which was a Roman trattoria. So he had this great wealth of knowledge outside of Union Square Cafe and, and some other things. And we were trying to figure out, you know, the buzzword of what are you? Are you American food? Are you continental American? Are you whatever? And I just remember, and it now sounds so contrived, but it was like something like, regional American comfort food with a farm to table flair. And it was like 10 or 11 words or whatever it was. And it was like, well, that's not going to work. I think we said it to the first two or three uh, media relationships that reached out to us. And they were like, yeah, we're just going to call you American food. And I was like, okay, that sounds great. But that restaurant was amazing. I think the one thing that he and I both agreed on from the start was to source and to create from what we were taught at Union Square Cafe from a market standpoint. 
at one point beyond lemons and limes in the restaurant, we sourced every single thing that came into the restaurant within 60 miles. Two pigs a week and a side of beef every two weeks. I would drive up to Pine Plains, New York, to the slaughterhouse, pick it up. So it was local meat, drive it down in my Honda CRV, which was six, 700 pounds of meat at the time. And that's what we served for the next two weeks. Then we would get fish from sea to table from Montauk and all of these different things. And that was the one vision we always stood by, no matter if it was comfort food or if it was had an Indian flair or if we were trying to appease the demographic that was there at the time. Whatever kind of tweaks we did to the food, that was what we were rooted in. And it was really easy to do because that demographic was so enamored with Blue Hillstone Barns at the time, uh, which opened just before us with Dan Barber and his philosophy still to this day. And and all of that, they were so supportive of us taking kind of the smaller, less budget approach to that, uh, that he did maybe 10 minute drive away from us. That was really wonderful. Like a year in, you get nominated for your first James Beard Award. I think it's for the Rising Star Chef of the Year category. How did you find out? I was in a coffee shop. At that time, like I had heard of the James Beard Awards, but it was just so far-fetched of an idea that uh, that my name would ever be linked to it that I, I didn't know when they came out. I didn't know who was nominated. Like I, did, I just didn't know anything about it other than like it was the quote-unquote Oscars of the food world. Our restaurant was on one end of a strip mall, I guess, and there was a coffee shop on the other end. And I was probably eight, nine o'clock in the morning and I was getting a coffee and I got a call from a kid that I worked with. He was a sous chef at Tabla when I worked for him. And he just called me and he's like, congratulations, man. And that's amazing. I was like, what the f- are you talking about? Um, and he's like, dude, you've been nominated for a James Beard Award. And I just lost it. Like, I didn't know. I was, just started crying in the middle of a coffee shop. Like, I didn't know that that was even a possibility at the time. And, and I walked over to the restaurant in an absolute daze and a funk. And I told my partner, and he was like, stop. What are you talking? Stop it. Don't. What are you doing? Like, that's not even funny, Bubba. Like, don't even, don't even tell me. And we looked it up and it was real. It was really cool. It was a uh, kind of a life altering moment of like, wow, all of the hard work that we put in so far and everything that we had been, you know, trying to accomplish, like at least gave us validation that we were on the right path. And it just made us want to work harder, uh, made us want to win one. That was a really cool time. Then from like, I think that's like 2011 or so. And then like 2014 through 2016, you're nominated every year, Best Chef Northeast. Does that change anything for a restaurant? Does that change anything for you as a chef and your mindset? Or is it all just still kind of day to day? I'd like to say no, but it, it definitely did. And, you know, the expectation from the guests rises, which I was grateful for, right? That, that pushed us, pushed us to evolve and pushed us to get to the next level, pushed us to think outside the box. The chefs that were winning those awards had the support of the community, which we also did, um, but they were also pushing boundaries. To constantly think about how to push boundaries and constantly think about food in new ways, it definitely made me a better chef. And again, I was lucky to have my partner, Stephen, because he didn't get the recognition on the document, man, but like he was that person that was pushing the envelope nonstop. He was the one that was trying to nudge me to go one step further here, one step further there super grateful that I had him there because I would have probably gotten there on my own, but it would have taken a little longer. I mean, we were a team as much as teams could be. And really all four of those awards were, uh, were definitely, they were accelerators and they pushed us, you know, and we also had higher expectations of ourselves and, uh, yeah, it's pretty wonderful, man. It's not gonna lie to you. It was a great time. And somewhere in that time frame too, you wind up for the first time, you've done it a bunch since, but you wind up cooking on the today show. So how does that come together? Do they reach out to you and are like, Hey, would you be interested in like coming down to Rockefeller center and like cooking on set or like, so the first time I got asked to do it, 
it was a classic, like, you never know who you're talking to until the next day type situation, um, which happened a lot in that restaurant because the restaurant was in Armonk, New York, which is an incredibly high per capita income area. So a lot of celebrities live there. A lot of hedge fund uh, owners live there. You know, we opened in a place where we knew somebody could come out and spend $500 on a random Tuesday night. And that was part of the business model. You know, with that comes a lot of really cool people that walk through your door, some of which you know and some of which you don't. So one random, I think it was Thursday night, some really awesome gentleman just sat at the bar. And I remember he ordered really well. He ordered foie gras and then roast duck or something like that that like got me intrigued. And I walked out to him and I was just like, man, that was a really great order. You know, if there's anything else I can do for you. And I think I sent him an extra little bite or something uh, before dessert. He was sitting alone at the bar. Ended up being this gentleman named Jim Bell, who is the executive producer of the Today Show. Now is the executive producer of all the Olympics for NBC and very famous in that world. And the next day I got a phone call from his assistant and was just like, listen, Jim came in last night at a really great meal and wants to know if you'd ever be interested in coming on the show. And of course, I absolutely tell me when and where. And I did. And then I guess I did well enough that they had me back multiple times. And I just actually got reached out to a couple weeks ago. I think I'll be on again in November or December um, of this year. And that'll be my 23rd appearance, 22nd appearance. It's a lot of fun. The Today Show folks do it right. They're all about supporting our industry to their audience. They know the responsibility of how large their audience is. They all love the food world. Every one of the people from the cameramen all the way to the talent, they love our world so much and they want to make sure they're doing the right things to support the right people in it. And I was lucky enough to have them think I was the right people. And it's been a cool ride with NBC for sure. It's a lot of fun to be on that show. Did you prep for it all your first time or like, how did that go? Do you remember now that you're like a veteran of being on there, but... I had this great idea that I was actually, that's funny. So I said Jim Bell ordered the duck, but he didn't. He ordered the short rib. And the reason I remember that is because I had this great idea that I was going to cook the dish that I served to Jim my first time on the show. It happened to be an incredibly labor-intensive technical process, right? It was a two-day cook time, and then you press the short ribs, and then all of this and that. It was like a really long process. Somehow, I thought that would be a great idea to do in three and a half minutes. It was with Al Roker my first time, and we cooked this short rib dish. I was nervous as hell. The day before, you actually go in the evening before the show, and you do a full run-through. And they take camera footage from up above so they know where every spoon has to go, where every pan has to go, all of that stuff. So you walk in the next morning, call time, I think it's 5 a.m. or so, and everything is laid out exactly where you need it because you did the run-through and they took all the pictures from up above and the team was there at two o'clock in the morning setting it up. And I was absolutely shitting a brick, pardon my French. It was a Tuesday morning that I did the show and Al Roker came in and he comes up to me and he goes, something to the extent of, hey kid or hey chef or whatever it was. And he's like, I just wanted you to know the producer sent me the recipe on Friday. I cooked it over the weekend. It's great. You're going to do great. Don't worry about it. And whether he did or he didn't cook through it, he gave me the confidence to know that he understood the dish. And I bet he did because not only does he love food, but his daughter is a chef. There's a lot of really cool things in his world with food. I had every ounce of confidence that I could do it. And it was rushed. Four minutes goes by like that on that show. But it was awesome. We had a great time. I had a great time. And the weight of it didn't hit me until after I got off when, you know, hundreds of text messages from people. When you realize how many millions of people are watching you on that show at that time, like coast to coast, one of the highest rated shows out there at that time period. And, and it was a crazy experience, but I had a blast. 
So then I think like October 2016, you wind up joining Tupelo Honey, originally as the executive chef and, and VP of culinary. So what made that opportunity the right one for your career at that time? I could have kept going at North, but it would have been to the detriment of my personal life. And I had at the time a two-year-old and a four-year-old. When you're at that level and you're working to achieve that excellence, and you know we talked about it just before, like getting all those awards or, or those nominations that keep pushing you and they push you and they push you, well, that comes at the detriment of the hours that you get to spend at home with your family. I always knew I wanted excellence in the culinary world and I wanted to be at the top, but I also always knew I wanted to have a family and a, and a family life that I could be proud of and a wife that thought I was integral as a part of my family. You know, sometimes a restaurant business gives you that opportunity and sometimes it doesn't. For me, in order to get to that level, when I made the decision that family life was just as important, if not more important at this stage of my career, I knew the change had to be drastic in order to make it viable for me. Couldn't go be a, a U.S. foods rep and sell food just because it was a little bit more nine to five. Like had to be drastic, but it also had to check so many different boxes of challenging, food focused, like minded person, company, all of that stuff. And I remember just kind of putting it out into the universe in a very small group of people that I was looking for a more leadership executive type role in something that would allow me to have more time with my family. I think Tupelo was either the first or the second job to come across. It just took a, one phone call with that leadership group to know that it was the right fit. They were wonderful people. They were starved for culinary talent at the time. And they really had a great vision of, you know, everything that I was looking for. They wanted to push themselves culinarily. They wanted to push themselves as a growing restaurant group. There was opportunity to be had. But they were also really were a people, are a people first organization. The way that their values lined up were the way that my values had, you know, where I was raised in the restaurant business and then hopefully was showing them in my own place. So it was a really natural transition for me to join Tupelo. You know, I took one trip to Asheville, North Carolina with my wife and oh my God, what a cool place I get to live in. It was a no brainer. At that time, how many locations did they have? Did they just have Asheville and like maybe Greenville or? Yeah, when I joined, I think they had 12. They were about to open their 13th and their 14th, uh, which were Denver and Frisco, Texas. So I joined them in October. We opened Denver in May and then Frisco, Texas in, I believe, July or August. Maybe it was September. It was a whirlwind. You know, I came in and cooked some really good food that, you know, they had dreamed about having this type of food on the menu at the time. And, and it went from, we're going to ease your menu in slowly to, we're putting it all on the menu because it's just good. And that was so wonderful to hear from them. And um, they were so supportive of me. And then we opened Denver and Frisco. And then we, you know, just worked on dialing in who we were as an organization you know, we teetered with going a little bit more fine dining um, or, you know, fine casual, as we called it at a certain time, and then kind of found our niche spot of who we are, what we are, what our guest is looking for. And I feel like we're there now. We're only going to tweak and get better, but there are elements of fine food that we can get involved in. Um, but really, you know, some of those Appalachian comfort foods, uh, some of the, the really down home things that Southern restaurants should be, we shouldn't get away from. We should just try to elevate in our small way. And so we kind of have this mantra now, or I do with our team, we want to be able to appease the foodie, give them something to be excited about, but we also want to make sure the Southern grandma is happy. Um, and if we can do both of those things at the same time, then we've hit our niche. So we're going to have chicken and waffles, but we're going to get creative with them and have mac and cheese stuffed chicken and waffles with, you know, like kind of get a little funky. And we're going to have 
collard greens, but they're going to be the best damn collard greens that anybody's ever had. That's kind of what we push ourselves to do. You guys, I think, have 19 locations that are open across 13 states. There's three more on the way with Las Colinas, Texas, Omaha, Nebraska, and Indianapolis, Indiana. So what's the overall goal? Is it one in every state or is it just expand when there's the right opportunity? I think it's expand when there's the right opportunity. I think in opening, so we actually, Columbus was our 20th with three more on the horizon next year. Everything has to be right in a number of different senses, but we do a lot of finding a right market and then trying to understand if that market wants us, needs us, could benefit by having more of us. So, you know, we opened in the Midwest and it was right away one of the best openings we'd ever had. The demographic in the Midwest was super accepting and craved what we had, fried chicken, shrimp and grits. You know, there wasn't a lot of that where we opened. And we just decided that, you know, when the opportunity presents itself in the Midwest, it's proven to work out good for us. And so there, it's opportunistic. And we started looking in the Midwest. And there's a couple of different markets that are like that, too. Obviously, we grew from the Southeast. So we have our biggest roots here. And so I would say, yeah, our real estate strategy is definitely opportunistic. We want to grow when it's right to grow. We're not growing for any other reason than to to build a better life than the lifestyle for, for every one of the employees that we have. You know, I'm still enamored and amazed by the fact that we sit around a table as a senior leadership group and we talk about taking care of our 1,800 employees or 1,900 employees. And that boggles my mind to think that we have that much of an impact on that many lives. Um, and hopefully in a positive fashion is, is really cool. What was it about Columbus that kind of made the cut, you know, for the organization? Was it just the demographics or just a void in the marketplace where, you know, there are a few places that do fried chicken, which is kind of the the main staple of the menu, but there's not a lot and they're varying degrees and stuff like that too as well. So So definitely opportunity. We love college towns that take their football seriously. Columbus is a great market. It's a great demographic of both young and older. It is an incredibly passionate community, jived with all of the things we learned from some of the other Midwest locations that we opened, right? Like Grand Rapids, Michigan. I hate to say Michigan when we're talking about Columbus, but I know Milwaukee and like those locations that we started to open were incredibly successful. And we knew that Columbus had a very similar demographic, was just as rabid about food if not more so than those two locations. Um, and they did really well for us. So, And I've always loved Columbus. My wife's family are an Ohio State family. Her uncle played football for Woody Hayes in the 70s, won a championship. So I know how rabid you all can be about things you're passionate about. And we just wanted that opportunity to give you something to be passionate about. You'd been to Columbus before then, so you kind of knew a, a little bit about the city and everything like that. And I don't know how often you get back, but, you know, between kind of your last visit and visit before that, you know, what were your thoughts on Columbus as a city? Was there any standout highlights, any things that you thought the city would have but doesn't have yet? No, I would say it, it checks a whole lot of boxes, spread out, but laid out in a way that's really cool, right? Like every area has its own kind of identity, which I love about a city. I think it was very apparent from early on with the amount of interest that we got, how rabid about food you all are. You know, the passion that seeps out of that campus is incredible, right? Like, and we're so close to campus that we felt it a lot, but it's definitely a feeling and a vibe and a thing. Your beer scene is incredible. Columbus Brewing Company, and there's so many of the breweries that we visited while we were there. Elvis Juice is kind of a a really amazing thing. I thought Columbus was as much of a no-brainer for us as any location that we've ever opened, and so far it's proving to be that. 
you guys had the soft opening and, and it opened, I think, last week. So some feedback, but what item are you most excited to get feedback on, you know, from the public? You know, one of the things that we always look for is we are a fried chicken house and we put so much passion and love into it. But are we missing a diner with our menu anywhere? You know, like, and that's something we constantly look at and we constantly try to evolve to make sure um, we're not just a fried food house. We have entrees that'll keep everybody happy from a vegetarian to diet restricted people to new food trends. So yeah, that's something that I'm constantly looking at and making sure we hit on those marks. Sometimes we hit them and sometimes we don't, to be honest with you, but we are constantly looking to improve in that area. We are very confident that we do a lot of rigorous testing in Asheville and then on site of all of our food. And, and I hope this doesn't sound egotistical, but our fried chicken is damn good. I hope you all feel the same way. But yeah, feedback is how we grow and how we learn. So if anybody out there in podcast land is listening and wants to share, please do. We'd love to learn from that. Is the menu the same at all the locations or does it vary slightly? Like you might tweak the dessert menu for regional specifics or you already talked kind of a little bit about you guys visited a bunch of breweries. So incorporated that on kind of the drink side, but the food side, is it pretty much the same across the board? Yeah, I would say we kind of have a couple of different tiers based on demographic and what sells and what doesn't, where maybe one restaurant will have a certain amount of dishes that another one won't. Sometimes volume comes into play with can can we staff for the dollar amount that we're going to do that can execute as many dishes as we have. You know, the busier the restaurant, the easier it is to have a larger menu. We try to balance that out a lot. So I would say the majority of the time, our menus are close to the same. Um, obviously, our beverage core program is, is very much the same everywhere. Where it's allowed to be, liquor license laws are a little bit tricky. But we also give our bartenders and the, our bar managers a little bit of autonomy with how they run their bar program. You know, we dedicate a certain amount of the taps that we have to local beers to make sure that we're supporting the community. There are certain areas of opportunity where we can substitute in local products from every market to kind of swap out like um, Holiday Sausage Company in Columbus is an example. Similar but different, I guess, is a really good way. Maybe 85 to 90% of everything is kind of the same. And we kind of tweak 10% to make sure we're hitting the, the demographic and giving you all what you're looking for. And, you know, in Columbus, we might not learn that for a year. We might not learn what you want and what you're looking for for a year. So we, we put our best foot forward and give you what we think uh, as a demographic you're looking for. And then we learn from it constantly looking at, you know, sales mix and numbers and making sure that if you're ordering it, then we've done it right. If you're not ordering it, we want to make sure that we're understanding what, how we can get something in there that might intrigue you all a little bit more. How extensive is the process for when you want to add a new dish on the menu or swap something out? Because chances are it's not just for that one location. It's going to be for 19, 20 locations and all these different regional specific things. So how extensive is that process to make sure that this is something you're confident that can go on the menu and stay on the menu? So we do two menu changes a year is what we shoot for, uh, one in spring and one in fall. And that process is 26 weeks long. And that starts with research and development from Asheville. And it goes all the way to full-on regional trainings where we fly out to four different cities and fly all our chefs in to learn from us. I have an amazing team of five culinary directors now that are regional. And there is one big kahuna chef over five restaurants each. They and I work very closely together. I teach them once we decide on the menu items, which are vetted through surveys in every market that we're in. We're lucky we have a really great social media platform and loyalty program where we have over 150,000 people in our loyalty program. I'll probably be corrected by the marketing team to say it's more, but I'm not sure. 
So we have this great opportunity where we're like, hey, we're thinking about sweet potato pancakes as a comeback dish. What do you think about it? We'll send it out to our loyalty club. We'll get 8,000 responses by the next morning. And really to see exactly like market by market, demographic by demographic, how they would receive that, what they want. Like we get really great feedback from that group to, to kind of help shape our decision making. So we, we start with ideas of what trends are in the market, what food and items we start seeing more and more how we can relate to them and how we can bring them to the guests. And then we vet our guests. Before, before I even pick up a pan, we've talked to our guests about these dishes. And then we start cooking and just take it from there. And sometimes the greatest ideas we've ever had never make it. And sometimes the, the ideas that are just, you know, we'll be five tastings in with the senior team and somebody will be like, hey, what about this on this? And we'll throw it together. And next thing you know, it's like a number one seller in our doors. So it's a cool process. But yeah, to answer your question, six months from start to finish to get a menu together and to roll it out to all of our stores. When you joined Tupelo Honey 2, you help co-author, I think their third cookbook. How labor intensive is that process? A lot of chefs, they do one cookbook and they never want to do it again. And it's basically the margins on it are similar or maybe a little worse than running their own restaurant. So it's really about kind of marketing and, and PR from that standpoint. But then you have some chefs that Obviously, they're outside the box. Like Eric Repair has done probably, I don't know, like 13 probably by now. That works for him. But there's a lot of chefs. You know, I think David Kinch only did one. Thomas Keller is, just came out with a second one, but it's not as revered as his first, you know, the French Laundry is. So how labor intensive is that process, even though it's th the third one that they released? It was super labor intensive. And to be honest with you, I had agreed to do the book before I even stepped foot into Blow Honey. They were looking to get the third one done and, and they knew I was coming on board. So I kind of started working on it uh, before I started in October 2016. Um, and I was lucky. They gave me a resource, which was great, um, who did a really a lot of the grunt work in the book. But uh, that paled in comparison to the amount of overhaul of the menu we did at that same time period. So it, maybe if I did one now, I would realize how painful it actually was. But it was such a whirlwind of moving my family, you know, however many hundreds of miles and getting settled and writing the cookbook. And I mean, we designed four full menus from scratch, one for the whole company, then one that was completely different for Denver and one that was completely different for Frisco, Texas, because um, we were trying to figure out our identity at the time. Yeah, maybe I don't have the vision of how painful it was because everything else was a little bit more, uh, I don't want to say painful, hard, because it wasn't painful. It was all wonderful. I would do another book. I would just have the right resources to do it before we did another book. I'd like that book to be a little bit more technical and a little bit more um, maybe storytelling of, of, you know, Southern cuisine and how we kind of evolved into it. I don't know that you'll see that anytime soon. We haven't had the conversation recently, but uh, yeah, why not? This summer, you moved into a senior VP of culinary and beverage, along with the corporate executive chef role at Tupelo Honey. What's the difference between that and what you were doing? What kind of changed for your day to day? So the need to kind of steer and spearhead our beverage program into its next evolution uh, came up about two or three years ago. I've always been intrigued by beverage. I've always had a good handle of cocktails and wine and, and um, the beer scene um, when we were going through a little bit of a transition in Tupelo. It was something that I thought was going to be really rewarding. And it was. It was a challenge that I was tasked with that I never thought I would be tasked with. And then was just like, well, fuck it. I'm going to do the greatest job that I've ever imagined being able to do. But I have to start from learning about this business from scratch. 
and so we did. You know, I had a, a really good partner at the time and at Tupelo that was willing to help me out and um, really just started from, you know, what we've done successfully at Tupelo Honey and then kind of mirrored it to how we evolved the food program to be successful. It was a little bit jumbled, as was maybe my first couple of menus at Tupelo. And so I said, okay, well, how did I fix the menus? How did we as a group fix the menus to get to a, a level where we feel it's excellence now or what we consider to be excellent? And we took that same approach for beverage. And so it was a really long process. The, the beverage world is a lot about relationships, a lot about really setting guidelines of how you want the guests to view your vision and also to give the people what they want. Small example was of all of the beverage we sold at Two Below Honey, 40 some percent of that was Bloody Marys and mimosas. And we only had one Bloody Mary and one mimosa. So one of those easy decisions was, well, let's expand on what the people are ordering, give them an opportunity to expand that further. So we immediately created four more mimosas and four more Bloody Marys and made it five and five. And now that 40 some percent turned into 65%. And not only kind of took from the other things that they were purchasing, like they weren't going from beer to now mimosa, they were just ordering more. And so then we started to increase how much alcohol we sold as a company. And we saw that as an opportunity to create different platforms and, and let the guests speak to us. I had that opportunity to kind of roll with beverage for a, a while by myself with a little bit of help. And then about a year ago, we took on um, one of our general managers that showed an incredible amount of interest in the beverage program. We took her on as a director of corporate beverage. I stepped into the senior vice president role, and she has taken everything that I didn't have the bandwidth to do and made it better. I saw the beverage program from a business standpoint and tried a little bit of the creative side, but wasn't comfortable in my own skin as a mixologist to do some of those things. Um, and she took it from a mixologist side and we're just kind of meshing really well together of running the business from one direction and running the mixology program from another direction and creating something that is really elevated our game and beverage. And um, that's how it's different for me than just saying I'm the chef that cooks the food in the restaurant, which um, is a lot of what my job was. And now it's both. Do you feel that there's still a stigma at all in the food and beverage hospitality world against restaurants that can be considered chain restaurants? Or did that kind of fall by the wayside when COVID happened and everybody is kind of like, it doesn't matter what you're classified as now, as long as you're doing good things and supporting the people that work for you, who cares if you're an independent restaurant or in 50 states? I agree. Yeah, it doesn't matter. The thing is, we were an independent restaurant. We opened as one. Uh, we opened our second one eight years later. Um, and that was before I got there. But the growth was slow, but it was rooted in being an independent. So we still treat ourselves as if we're an independent and not a quote unquote chain. I bet you in Asheville, if you ask 80% of the public that loves and dines at Tupelo Honey, how many Tupelo Honeys there are, they would say two or three. It's because we're rooted in this community as an independent was. Um, and yes, there are things about us that are chain. And there are things about us that from a corporate level, we have to act in a certain fashion. But I don't think that makes us any different than uh, some of the independents that are here. As someone who owned his own independent restaurant, there are a lot of things that I might not have said I appreciated or wanted to be like the chain restaurants, but there are a lot of those things. You want the best of both worlds. And I think we can do that at Tupelo because we invest in the right people with the right mindset to be able to do it. Chain isn't a bad word anymore. It just means that, you know, we've grown and we've been successful. And I bet you if you ask 90% of the independent chefs around the country what their goal would be, it's to grow in the same fashion that we did. Yeah, I'm grateful to be a part of it, chain or no chain, you know?
kind of like a mission statement. It says uh, a revival of Southern food. Did Southern food need reviving? What exactly does that mean? Because I could see it both ways. So I'm curious as to what you have to say on that front. Did Southern food need reviving? No, it didn't. Could it benefit from it? Absolutely. I said it before, right? Southern grandma and foodie. That's what I mean about revival. That's what I think we say when we say revival. That's more of the, could the Southern grandma be happy eating the same cornbread collard greens biscuits they've always made? Yeah, 100%. But can we also get to a next level where we're incorporating technique like confit? Really beautiful, long R&D process for our fried chicken, fresh vegetables, things that the independent chef, again, back to that, their focus would be on, that's the revival. That's bringing our spin to it and, and trying to make it, I don't want to say better because what Southern food is, is awesome. But reviving it to give it a new life and maybe a little bit of a tweak, yeah, why not? If you look at all the best chefs in the country, that's what they're doing for their type of cuisine. Mama Fuko, uh, David Chang is not cooking traditional food. He's cooking his spin with a little bit of his creative brain on that spin. So that could be a revival of that cuisine. Same for Thomas Keller, right? Like book that you talked about was so playful in how he approached food, bacon and eggs and oysters and pearls and all of those things. That's a revival of that Americana, beautiful French technique cuisine too. I don't think we're saying anything bad by saying revival because no Southern food doesn't need a revival, but it can sure benefit for the, for the right guests and the right consumer. What do you define Southern food as? Is it ingredients? Is it history of a dish? Is it a feeling that you get when you eat the dish? Like what in your definition is Southern food? All of those things, man. Like going to a meal in the South cooked by someone who was born and raised and has, has started their life from scratch here. It's all of those things. It's technique that they don't quite know is as technical as it is. Feeling it's ingredients beyond anything, it's ingredients starting with what I would consider perfect ingredients, even though there's the ugly turnip or the, you know, the bad bean. Those are the things that create Southern cuisine. Listen, I'm a New Yorker. I don't pretend to, to say I'm rooted in Southern tradition any more than someone else that learned to cook it. But I've been enamored with it since I started smoking meat at Blue Smoke um, and cooking my first batch of collard greens. And if anything, I think there's a, a certain amount of reverence and honor to the type of cuisine. You know, I'm Italian in heritage and I can see the Italian regional peasant food, how it's prepared and that feeling that, you know, those techniques and that feeling when you make it the right way as your grandfather did and serve to your family, like that's the same way I feel about Southern food. And that's the same kind of notion to me of what Southern food is. So am I right to be able to sit here and tell you what Southern food is definitively? No, I'm not allowed to say that. I've resigned myself to that. But I can tell you that it sure is a feeling that I get. And then when I cook a certain way, the people that are Southern around me and that are rooted in that community, their approval process is that's what makes cooking Southern food as rewarding as it is. You also work with No Kid Hungry. You're a food activist and also do some congressional lobbying. So what are you trying to accomplish with all that? A couple of things. One is like, I've always had the thought process that I can put my head down and look at a stove all day long and just be, or I can try to do some good in the world as much as I can. And when I started to get a little bit of popularity as a chef, had a little bit of a platform and someone would reach out, I would do anything I could to help them. And so No Kid Hungry is one of the most amazing organizations on the planet. Really try to get food in front of children that need it. It is incredible to even fathom that in today's day and age, and actually right now with inflation, it's only getting worse. One in three children don't have the food they need every day. 
They're food insecure, which boggles my mind in this world that we live in. I don't have to tell you this, political favoritism aside, like Congress is very divided. Both political parties are very divided, even on how they approach things like childhood nutrition and childhood hunger. When I had the opportunity to go there and lobby, it had nothing to do with politics. It just had to do with getting food in kids' hands. It was the least I could do. And I had the opportunity to do it three or four times for No Kid Hungry, for child food insecurity, but also I had a chance to lobby with Childhood Nutrition Reauthorization Act, the CNRA, which was basically like school lunches and like how getting healthy food in kids' hands when they had the opportunity to get a meal was really important. I do as much charity work as I possibly can because it's important to give back because people have always treated me with respect and I'm lucky. I grew up without having to worry about food insecurity and without having to worry about where my next meal would come from. And I can't imagine that. I can't imagine that for my children who are eight and 10 and like anything I can do is, is great. I also just real quick want to mention another charity that we work with called uh, Cookies for Kids Cancer. We just did an event here in Charlotte last week where we raised over half a million dollars. This is an organization that was started by a woman named Gretchen Witt who lost her son Liam who wanted to be a chef to cancer at eight years old. She created this organization by starting a cookie fundraiser and has now raised probably over $10 million and has directly funded cancer research that has saved children's lives. This one charity has directly funded individual doctors that have created trials that have saved lives. So that's a really cool thing that I get to work with too. I just wanted to give them a shout out. What's next for you professionally? I know you guys got a couple locations on the horizon, so I'm assuming that's a lot of your focus, but what else you got going on? It's exactly that, right? Like we can always be better. There's a constant strive at Two Below Honey for perfection, um, even though that is not something that we ever think we'll get to be perfect because even when we are, we'll convince we're, ourselves we're not and keep pushing. New challenges arrive with growing. So I think a lot of that is trying to figure out how to make better food, how to pay better, how to have a more positive impact on our employees' lives. All of that, that's what I want from a professional level. And then from a personal level, it's just to be a better father. I get a really great opportunity to, to spend a lot of time with my kids and uh, that's wonderful. And I hope that humanity that I'm lucky enough to have translates down to our chefs and our cooks and our servers and our front of house staff. And that's a big enough project for me to say I could do that for the rest of my life. So this next question comes from the previous guest on the podcast, Vanessa Miller. She's the executive chef at Metropole and also the senior food and beverage director for 21C Museums based in Cincinnati, Ohio. She wanted to know what's the biggest mistake you've ever made and how did you fix it? Wow. I've made quite a few. I think it has to do with jumping to conclusions in managing people and being patient. I have a tendency to think of myself as wittier than I am sometimes and making quips that aren't necessarily uh, as uh, received well as they should be. I think it's understanding that words have consequences and understanding how they can affect other people's lives and being humble enough to say you're sorry. Um, and I can list off 35 to 50 uh, right now from the last five years, but I think I can just go ahead and say like making sure you're speaking to people with the same respect that you want to be spoken to with. And when you don't, having the balls to say you're sorry and make sure it doesn't happen again. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? My question for the next guest would be, there was definitely a moment that you were galvanized to understand that you were going to do this for the rest of your life for good or for bad. Sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. Who was with you in that moment and how did they react to it? 
This uh, next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, is ever owning your own restaurant something you'd want to do again? Or has the landscape shifted so much it's not a viable proposition or opportunity really anymore post-COVID, I think is what they're referencing. Owning your own restaurant is fun as hell, but it's also gambling because it's tough as hell. I've always told my wife that there might come a time down the road where maybe my parenting duties aren't as, as full as they are now, and I would want to do it again. But if I did, I would do it with money that I knew I could lose. And so it's a lot of making sure that I'm in the right mind frame to do it on my terms exactly the way I want to do it. But yeah, I could do it again for sure. It's incredibly rewarding if it's done the right way. So this last set of questions we asked everybody who comes on the podcast, nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far? I've had so many incredible chefs that I worked for. I would say Floyd Cardoz. So Floyd Cardoz was my executive chef at Tabla. I was 25 years old. He was incredibly strict, incredibly regimented. But the one thing that I learned from him more than anything, I don't know if you know of Floyd. Floyd was one of the first cases of COVID uh, in uh, 2020, passed away in March. Uh, it was the first real wake-up moment of, oh, shit, this thing is real. He was an incredible mentor and an incredible friend. But one of the things that he always did was he made time for himself in the business that is incredibly demanding. He would come in early in the morning, leave right after lunch and go to the gym. He would come right back after the gym. He would work a little bit into dinner service and then he would go home and make sure he put his kids to bed. Beyond all the food stuff I learned from him and beyond all the technique I learned from him, which was tremendous, that understanding of the necessity to be a good human and to take care of yourself in what can be an unforgiving business um, was probably the most important thing I've ever learned. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? Peeler. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So since you're based in Asheville, I would say the Asheville market then. I'm trying to think of the date night spot I would go to if I had the opportunity tonight would probably be, there's a great restaurant in Asheville called Bull and Beggar, which I think is popular, but incredibly underrated for the quality of food that they have. We were there a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I, and had a mind-blowing foie gras dish, a really wonderful roast duck, like just simple, but absolutely beautiful cuisine and a great elegant bar program that is completely underrated, in my opinion. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So a place you haven't visited yet, you still want to go. And then also a restaurant you haven't eaten at yet, but you still want to dine at. The restaurant I want to go to is a guest that you had recently, Blue Dorn. I did the Today Show right in November 2019. I had this really great opportunity. The Chico wildfires were going on where uh, California was burning. I got Aaron Blue Dorn and I and a couple of other chefs got the opportunity to fly to California to cook for some of the first responders in the wildfire. It was awesome, but I learned a lot about Aaron and a lot about uh, how wonderful of a person he is and his philosophy about food. And ever since he's opened in Texas, I've wanted to go and I haven't had the opportunity. I find myself in Dallas a lot, but not in Houston a lot. So I've definitely got to make a trip. And travel destination, I want to eat my way through every ounce of Spain. Um, I feel like I just a couple of years ago ate my way through Italy um, and I'm done with that. Not done with that. It was wonderful. I'd go back again, but there's so many more places I want to go to. But the cuisine, the food in Spain, the tapas and the little bites everywhere is just kind of how I want to. I would love to spend weeks there eating my face off when I'm not in a weight loss competition with my CFO. Aaron's getting ready to open a second restaurant, Navy Blue or something like that's the name. It's getting close. I think early 2023, it's going to open. Aaron, if you're listening, I'm coming, man. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Certain acts of uh, romance under a table in the middle of a dining room on a Saturday night. That actually happened at Blue Smoke. When our manager went up to the table, 
and went to the two guests and said, that's not on the menu. Please stop it and move on. The gentleman's name was Selby Ham. He was very, way more witty and, and funny than I am. And uh, I'll never forget that for the rest of my life as we all kind of like peered over the wood pile by the smoker pits to see what was actually going to happen. Food or drink guilty pleasures? Is there anything, uh, I know you mentioned you're in a weight loss competition there with your CFO, but is there anything, fast food, candy, that's uh, super unhealthy, you just can't help yourself? Yeah, American cheese, Chinese buffets, those two things are probably the two biggest guilty pleasures, right? I want a grilled cheese or a hamburger with American terrible processed food on it. And I want to go to the horrible Chinese buffet uh, with the zero food quality and all of the MSG. That makes me happy. Favorite Instagram account you follow? One that you just enjoy, you never really skip it? Uh, Bob Does Sports, a golf Instagram account. That's a really fun one for me. Food, I don't know. I have so many that just scrolling through nonstop to see new food, new dishes. I can't really pull them out, but I, I do spend a good amount of time looking at food Instagram. Favorite dish thing you ever cooked, created, you know, looking back over the course of your career, you can kind of point to this thing, this dish as the moment you knew you could be a professional chef. It might be that short rib dish uh, that I actually did on the Today Show the first time that we talked about earlier. That was the first time where it was, I put together a vision of technique and food and process and it, it got to a final stage that ended up being really wonderful and well-received. And, and I was like, oh shit, I can do it. That was probably it. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. If you were, is there a moment episode seen something that still stands out to you about him? Blue Smoke was a block and a half from Lay Hall. Um, and I was 19, 20 years old when I worked there. And there was a bar about a half a block from Lay Hall that was called Dempsey's. And Dempsey's was as dive a pub as you could ever imagine. And that was where Anthony drank six nights a week. I met him a few times, but just in passing, we didn't know each other. He never would have known my name. But Anthony had a thing, and this was before Kitchen Confidential came out or right when it came out, that if he saw you and you were in the business, you never paid for a drink. He never told you that to your face or he never you know, shouted about it. But there were multiple times where we would walk into Desmond obviously carrying our knife kit and Anthony would be there sitting by himself or with one of his cooks at one end of the bar. Nobody bothered him, you know, whatever it was, but he would leave and then you would get up to leave and pay your tab and it was taken care of. He just always took care of his people. Like, and the industry was his people, whether he knew you were or you didn't. Um, so I was really lucky as a young kid to be able to be exposed to, to him and his kindness, which a lot of people didn't see. He was just as regular one of us as you could ever imagine him being. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. Uh, TupeloHoneyCafe.com, at Eric Gabrinowitz on Instagram, and at Eric Gabrinowitz, all is one word on Twitter. If you have the ability to spell it, then you'll find me. And if you don't, keep trying. It's a little bit of food and a little bit of just family life now, and uh, it's my life, but uh, happy to you know connect with anybody who wants to. Yeah, and check out the Tupelo Honey website. It's got a list of all the locations. The one here in Columbus just opened. I think they're open every day of the week. Obviously, the brunch menu on weekends. They also have an Instagram account, which I think is just at Tupelo Honey, too, as well. It kind of covers all the restaurants um, from what I could tell. But I uh, had the chance to, to try the food firsthand during kind of the soft opening. The fried chicken is amazing. I know it's a proprietary blend that gets on there, but it's got... 
nice little spice to it. There's some sweetness. The chicken was perfectly executed. Fried pickles were delicious. They're a little different too, where it's not overly breaded. So the breading's like nice, but they're still crispy and everything like that too. So it's going to kill it here. I have no doubt about that. There's not a whole lot open around where it's located, which is kind of right off Lane Avenue. It's a prominent just south of campus, like you kind of mentioned in that area. And there's not a whole lot of places that are open for lunch anymore. And that's a lot of cities post-COVID uh, lunch service has kind of been taken out um, just because all the different staffing challenges and stuff too. So again, appreciate you coming on, taking some time out of your day. I know you're busy. We'll let you get back to it. But if there's anything you ever need from us, feel free to reach out. We always want to support everybody who comes on the podcast as much as we can. The food is excellent. The food is really good. It's a cool space. And yeah, I think it's going to do really well here in the Columbus market. It's really good fried chicken. Even my friend who was with me, he's had your food before. It'd been some years since the Greenville one. And he's you know from the South. He's from South Carolina. And he's he was blown away by it. You guys are doing something right. Please do, Ray. Thanks so much for your time. You know, it's an honor to be in Columbus. The community has been so super supportive of the last three weeks, which are always the toughest for us. Uh, we just hope we uh, give you good damn fried chicken and, and all the things that uh, Columbus is looking for. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. Big thanks again to Eric for coming on the podcast. Big thanks again to Megan Garb for helping set that up too as well and coordinating with scheduling and everything. So you can follow Eric on Instagram at Eric Gabernowix. You can also follow the restaurant at Tupelo Honey. You can follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. Check out our website, SpoonMob.com. Uh, make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, you can check us out on YouTube. We put all the episodes up there a week after they hit all the podcast apps. Uh, new episodes come out Thursdays, 1 a.m. For the month of December, we are doing two episodes a week. So Tuesdays at 1 a.m. and Thursdays at 1 a.m. Appreciate everybody listening. Appreciate everybody who's written in questions and comments and feedback and everything so it's awesome to see that that people appreciate kind of what we're doing and people that we're having on the podcast it's pure kind of curation you know the people that we have on the podcast are people that we're interested in talking to uh, we think they're, they're doing something either special in the industry or they have a great idea or they have a really interesting career or really interesting viewpoint on something it's not just every single chef in columbus we're going to try and have on or Every single chef in Ohio, we're based out of Columbus, Ohio, but it's not a Columbus podcast. You know, we've had people on from Vancouver, Canada. We've had people on from Las Vegas, Nevada, Dallas, Texas, Houston, Texas. So we've had, you know, different people on from different areas across the country. A majority of our guests are from the Ohio area, but we're not exclusive to the Ohio area, uh, if you will. So and we have some exciting cities that are all within a couple, you know, hours drives. You know, Nashville's five, six hours away. Indianapolis is two and a half. Cincinnati's 90 minutes. Cleveland's like two hours. Detroit's like three, three and a half hours. Pittsburgh's three hours. So there's cool people doing cool stuff throughout, you know, the Midwest and getting into the South and everything like that. Louisville's three hours. So, you know, we're excited to kind of explore the region and everything. But, you know, we do jump on planes and do get to explore other restaurants and other cities outside that too as well. So we just try and find, you know, cool people doing cool shit. And uh, if they agree to come on the podcast, have a cool conversation, try and approach it from a different aspect. There are a couple standard questions that we ask just because you kind of have to in a way, but we really try and come up with stuff that's outside the box that they haven't been asked or they haven't thought of in a long time and kind of spark that kind of thing in their brain where, you know, they start bringing back all these different memories and 
they can kind of attach it to what they're doing now and, and everything like that. So it's been a lot of fun so far. Uh, we're still going full steam ahead. Like I said, we got more great episodes on the way. We're reaching out to people to set up stuff for early next year too as well. So super excited to see you know who we're able to get on the podcast and share that all with you guys. So appreciate everybody who's been listening along the way. Continue to help spread the word whenever you pop into one of these establishments that you know somebody we've had on the podcast from. Make sure to you know just drop our name and just be like, hey, you know we heard about this place on Spoon Mob Podcast and super excited to try it. You know that does more for us than any sort of marketing or paid advertising or anything could ever do. So, and it's cool to, you know, kind of tie it all together with everybody in the end. They know that coming on the podcast was worth it for them too, as well. So whether they have, you know, a pop-up or a new menu or whatever, and we always want to have people back on too, when, you know, they're doing a new menu or open a new restaurant too, as well. So we want to be an open place where chefs can come and talk about whatever, if they want to promote something, that's cool too. We want to hear kind of the creative process behind, you know, why they're opening that new restaurant and, you know, all the stuff that went into that more so than just something that you'd read in a quick news blurb where it's like, so-and-so is opening a new restaurant. It's going to be in this building and here's their hours. It's like, cool, but like, why are they opening that restaurant? What's the idea behind the concept? Where does that concept originate from? So that's what we're trying to tap into. So far, so good, but uh, more stuff on the way. So again, appreciate everybody who's been listening. If you're new, welcome. If you've been here for the whole time or for a while, thank you for your continued support. And uh, we will talk to you guys next week.